Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. What's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Friday, September 4th, 2020. Does the word happy as a descriptor in a job posting discriminate against the unhappy? Some bureaucrats would say yes. We're joined by a vociferous proponent of scientific skepticism and host of the podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and the story of a former Playboy model who tells us about her journey to the depths of depression, desperation, and addiction and her path back to recovery. All of this starts now. Allison is feeling very happy. <laughs> you can't be doing that, Allison. That would disqualify you from working in your own salon, wouldn't it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, I cannot find another word that hasn't got an opposite to it. So if you would like to try and choose me a word, perhaps a Canadian word I could use that we could translate into English that would probably not have such a meaning. <laughs> well, you're going to find this uh, kind of quaint, but we in Canada, as uh, former colonials, do speak English uh, pretty much. derivative. have got a slightly different word for happy. <laughs> uh, joyful, joyful. How's joyful? Oh, yeah, but what if somebody's not joyful? What if someone's not joyful? All of a sudden, I feel like Roger here. Uh, happy is its own universe. It, it speaks kind of like uh, it defies description. We just know it when we see it. It's like good art. Uh, okay, so you put this in an ad, though, and uh, I guess it was the local authorities, the Department of Works and Pensions. How bureaucratic does that sound? They they said this was verboten. Uh, how did you feel when you got first notified that... Uh, and by the way, first, tell us exactly what your ad said explicitly. Could you, Allison? It was a very simple... Um, uh, just literally, all I put on the advert was uh, a fully qualified stylist uh, with five years' experience, uh, must do gents' hair as well as ladies', uh, we are a small, friendly, happy salon. So if you're a, a happy stylist, please come and join us. That is and literally so, it. <laughs> well, okay, but that sounds so innocuous, so, you know, basically harmless. Here I go through the thesaurus again. But, okay, friendly might have been a problem. There are unfriendly people who may feel discriminated <laughs> against. You, you know, I mean, this is really... Uh, uh, a minefield that you're going through here, a verbal minefield. So the, the Department of Works and Pensions thought this was offside. Uh, express why that was specifically told to you. Um, I got told that, um, obviously, uh, before I could um, post the ad online, it had to go through the authorities just to check that everything was okay. And I had a phone call from the gentleman saying that um, he was from the, the job centre 
and he was just looking through my ad and unfortunately he couldn't place the ad because I put something that was discriminatory on it and my heart actually stunk uh, because you know PC this world and I thought oh good grief what word have I put and and I said to him you know that's that can't be the case I'm very PC what word is it and he said the word happy and I said, are you winding me up? The word happy is discriminatory. And he said, yes, what happens if somebody is unhappy and so that they won't be able to apply for the job? And I really did think it was somebody winding me up because the word happy is, you know, a word that I use probably 20 times a day. Mm. And he said, unfortunately, until we change the word happy then we can't uh, post it online, so it won't become live. And so it's up to you. You either don't post the ad or you change the word. So unfortunately, I had total disagreement and said, look, I want the word happy. Put in my advert. We are a small, friendly, happy uh, salon, and I really want a happy stylist to come and work with us. And at that point, he said, well, I'm afraid... Um, because you won't change the word, uh, it's discriminatory, so we can't place your ad for you. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> wow. And so has the ad now been removed entirely, or are you going to go back up that hill? No, but I had um, a very nice email. I mean, obviously, this has gone um, not only local or, you know, it's gone almost worldwide. It's been shared on every newspaper in England. It's made the front headlines of every newspaper. And uh, I had an email uh, later on that afternoon, quite late, in fact, to say that they'd had a look at um, the ad. Uh, They'd gone through all the transcript of everything that was discriminatory. And um, the word happy wasn't in there. So he apologised and said... Uh, if I'd like to um, replace the ad, then he would. But I said, look, I'm too frightened to put the ad back up on there in case of all the abuse or anything that I've got. So I've just literally got a tiny little advert put in my little salon window um, asking for it again. So it's just absolutely incredible that the word happy as just dominated my life for the last two days (laughs) it's amazing yeah obviously what happens when you get engaged with an overly officious bureaucrat uh so now the sign says help wanted uh i guess that's better but geez (laughs) you know uh although you do realize all night long couldn't we about the word that you could put and i can't find a word that hasn't got an opposite so I could put sociable. Well, they would have been. They could be unsociable. Um, I could put self-motivated. But what happens if somebody's not self-motivated? So I thought happy was, you know, a yeah. lovely word to be able to use on an advert. Pretty generic, yeah. Although you do realize in some communist countries, you'd be speared away in the middle of the night, and we'd never hear from you again. You'd be sent to a re-education camp. They would beat that. <sighs> Well, hey, listen, in Gloucester, England, do you have a McDonald's there? Because I'm thinking, I mean, uh, what are they going to find serving Happy Meals? This might be in contravention of the local establishment. I, you, you just there 
but I have had so many comments about, what about man in a van? People that come around and collect our rubbish. Why can you have man in a van? Happy meals for McDonald's, as you say. There is, mm. oh, the, the consequences of it is massive. <laughs> and I've probably had on um, my social media, um, I've probably had everything. From jokes to wind-ups to <laughs> everything well, on there. <laughs> I'm guessing, yeah, that it turned out to be a, a little bit of fun in the end, and uh, even though you advertised for it. I think this it. is it. I think, um, or put everything aside, I think that this is actually grabbed people's attention because, it, one, it's a bit of a PC thing, I understand that, but I think also, I think it's given everybody a little bit of a laugh, if I'm allowed to say the word laugh. Um, so <laughs> well, you I see, it's cheered people up. It's given somebody, everybody, to talk about something other than, you know, the the sadness in the world. And I think that's why it, it's just gone so big because people have been able to talk about it and basically had a laugh about it, isn't it? Stephen Novella is a professor at Yale University School of Medicine and a vociferous proponent of scientific skepticism. He also hosts the weekly podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Stephen Novella, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on. By the way, uh, to my question on that Bermuda Triangle thing, uh, I mean, do we just dismiss that outright? Uh, there's no credence to any of that at all? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's actually been studied. We don't have to dismiss it out of hand. You could look at data, and in fact, if the um, amount of planes and boats and whatever incidents in the Bermuda Triangle is pretty much proportional to the amount of traffic that flows through that area and is no different than any other traffic part of the world. All right. Uh, so there you go. I mean, that's good enough for me. I just find that there are still people hanging on for whatever reason. I mean, is there a certain psychology behind these people who embrace conspiracy theories and adopt them almost as a quasi-religion? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, now in a pretty extensive psychological literature looking at conspiracy thinking as a phenomenon. And, you know, this is. I think I like to say we all have a little conspiracy theorist inside of us. We all can sort of wrap our head around conspiracies. They give us a sense of maybe understanding, of control. We're sort of peeking behind the curtain. And there's also a part of us that wants to keep one eye out for potential threats, you know, things in the future that might harm us. And so there definitely appeals to our anxiety, our sense of control, et cetera. Uh, but some people, but you know, we all exist on a spectrum, and some people take it to really unhealthy degrees to the point where, as you say, it's more of an article of faith. Uh, it's a kind of a self-contained delusional belief system that insulates itself from facts, from reality, from, from logic. Yeah, and you can't knock them off that perch. I get it. You know, further to the idea, though, UFOs. Now, uh, there's been some credence lent to the whole phenomenon because of these reports out of the Pentagon and widely disseminated recently uh, that Navy pilots have actually locked in on things defying the laws of physics as we understand them. What do you make of these phenomena? So those videos have been investigated. I've taken a look at them myself, and they're not that impressive at all. Um, they're they're often just this you know indistinct blobs right and that's always you know a clue that you're dealing with uh, a misinterpretation like there's no clear photos of a flying spaceship uh, in some of the one of the one of the uh, videos for example it's pretty clearly just an airplane 
like a jet, a commercial jet at an extreme distance, uh, where the atmospheric distortion makes it look like a blob. And if you, you know, take video of planes at a distance, that's exactly what they look like. Another one is pretty clearly just a bird flying over the water. And of course, it looks like it's flying incredibly fast, but that's because the jet itself is moving. And there's a shifting perspective that makes it look like it's fast compared to the water, but it really is just a bird just flying at bird speed, you know, over the water. Now, pilots are human beings. They can't necessarily identify everything that they can see. They get fooled by optical illusions just like everybody does. They're, they're supposed to report things unusual, and it's perfectly reasonable for the Pentagon to look into them. But it, you can't interpret an unknown as a alien spaceship, right? It's an unknown until you figure out what it is. Whenever we do figure out what it is, it is something completely terrestrial and mundane. So far, we've not encountered anything where the best explanation is a, an alien spacecraft. All right. So these so-called supernatural phenomena uh, already have some kind of a mundane explanation, as you say, and rooted in the science as we understand it. Again, with Stephen Novella, he's the... Uh, He's got the weekly podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Let me ask you about something here that uh, is becoming increasingly problematic, and this is right in the realm of the contemporary situation with you know, the COVID-19 and a vaccine about to be developed. We had a report here in Canada just this week that uh, 10% of Canadians won't take the vaccine. There's vaccine resistance, I guess, is what the Chief Medical Officer of Health is calling it. Has the anti-vaxxer movement uh, gained enough, say, uh, currency if not credibility to make these numbers you know somewhat uh, arresting or at least uh, maybe concerning how do you see it what's going on with the anti-vaxxer movement yeah absolutely i mean you know first of all there's been an anti-vax movement ever since there have been vaccines literally you know a couple hundred years um so this is nothing new but they do tend to come and go over time they definitely have been much more active since social media you know came along because it makes it very easy for them to spread their fear-mongering. It's also a lot easier to instill fear than to reassure somebody with a lot of dry facts. You know, So parents, of course, they're hesitant if they start hearing that something could potentially harm their children. They should be worried from hearing that. But it takes a lot of time and effort to, to dig into the information to convince yourself that, yeah, okay, I should be giving this you know, injection to my kids. It, it is... Uh, the best thing for them. Uh, so, you know, they, they're just making it really hard for, uh, for, you know, public outreach and public, you know, public health, public service announcements, everything to educate the public about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Fortunately, you know, the, the science is overwhelming here. If you're just talking about vaccines in general, they are the single most effective public health measure we've ever devised as a species. They're incredibly safe. They're incredibly effective. This is the best preventive medicine that we have. Um, and we just have to make sure that, that the public understands that. Unfortunately, it only takes a minority to cause pockets you know, of vaccine resistance where infectious diseases are allowed to spread. So they can cause a lot of harm out of proportion to their numbers by interfering with this you know, public health campaign that requires everybody's trust and everybody's confidence and compliance. So, yeah, I expect they're going to make a lot of trouble. But it remains to be seen how much, you know, herd immunity, how much compliance the COVID vaccine will need. And will the anti-vaccine uh, noise-making be enough to, to drop that below the point where we can effectively stop, you know, the pandemic? You know, we will have to wait and see. You know, Stephen, when it comes to COVID-19, uh, 
I've spoken to various people, you know, who seem credible anyway, and the numbers that they've crunched uh, tend to support the idea that maybe this is not as uh, dramatic uh, an epidemic as is being parlayed in some some quarters. For example, the CDC came out with a report recently where they said, I guess, only 6% of these cases or fatalities from COVID are actual COVID-related. Others really rooted in comorbidities, and uh, that gets downplayed. I mean, how do we sort of separate the truth from, uh, I guess, what is being disseminated widely, or is that the truth? Have you investigated this at all through the skeptical lens? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're very much on top of any COVID-19 news because it's obviously of acute you know, public interest. So that's a very misleading summary of what the CDC data was showing. It's not that only 6% of people who are said to have died from COVID actually died of COVID. They all died of COVID. It's just that if you have, a, if you have an underlying condition, you are more likely to die when you get a serious COVID-19 infection. But those people would not be dead had they not contracted COVID-19. They died number one from COVID-19. When, you, when a doctor lists the cause of death uh, when, when a patient dies, they list the number one cause what they think was like the most proximate, immediate cause of death. But then they list all contributing causes. So, of course, if you have chronic medical condition that made you less able to fight off an infection, those get listed as comorbidities. But that's not the same thing as saying that they did not die of COVID. They died of COVID. If anything, the numbers that we're seeing are a gross underestimate. If you look at the excess deaths that have been occurring during this pandemic, it's higher by 20, 30, 40%, depending on which study you're looking at, but it's something like that than the official numbers. So that, like, we're at 186,000 in the United States, for example. The real number is probably closer to 200,000 in terms of COVID-19-related deaths. And, you know, worldwide, you know, uh, we're approaching a million, and, and we're definitely going to get past that number. But the real number is certainly higher than that already. So these numbers are underestimates. They are not overestimates. But it, there's enough complexity in there that if you have a political agenda, you can foment confusion, especially if you're telling people what they want to hear because it fits their, their political views. So how do you cut through this? Listen to multiple reliable sources that are not political, that don't have an agenda. Listen to what the experts are actually saying. Not what people say that they're saying, but what the experts are saying. And that's, you know, don't, again, don't trust me. Go find out for yourself. But that's what I just said is what the experts are saying. Well, let me ask, and uh, by way of follow-up on this medical uh, idea that, you know, uh, who do we uh, put our faith in? This, uh, again, Stephen Novella is with us, professor at Yale University School of Medicine, and he's also got the weekly podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. What do you make of some of these things that are uh, like naturopathy, uh, quack cure, or is there any credence to this? So, you know, na naturopathy um, is a uh, is not a medical profession. I mean, they don't have MDs, they don't have traditional medical training. It's sort of an alternative pathway of training, a different approach to to treatment. But it doesn't have scientific legitimacy. You know, they, it's based upon this philosophy that what's natural is good. It's kind of a vague sense, and it's a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of different treatments. Now, what I like to say, like what naturopaths do that work is not unique to naturopathy. They may prescribe supplements or something that, that is evidence-based. Uh, but what they do that is unique to naturopathy is pure quackery, and they also incorporate a lot of nonsense into what they do. For example, 
that's not unique to them, but it's still nonsense. Like they, naturopaths, for example, may prescribe homeopathy. Now, homeopathy is magic potions, right? There's, some people think it's herbs or natural treatments. It isn't. It's magical potions. It's you know substances that are fanciful to begin with, and then they get diluted out of existence, and you're basically taking just pure water, and there's supposed to be some kind of magical essence left behind. There's zero, I mean, it's been studied to death, even though it, it, there's no chance that it could possibly work, but there have been plenty of studies showing that it, in fact, doesn't work. Naturopaths use homeopathy, and so that really tells you all you need to know about the, the lack of a scientific basis of that profession. They, they're just not a science-based profession. Finally, I've got to ask, uh, almost out of time, but, you know, this one has dogged me for years, Nine eleven inside job. Agree or disagree? Oh, totally disagree. I mean, again, this has been investigated up and down by experts. There's, first of all, there's no evidence of a conspiracy. Keeping that level of conspiracy under wrap for this long would be literally impossible. And all of the video, visual evidence, physical evidence that we have, you know, supports the story that, you know, jets smashed into the, the Pentagon and the Twin Towers. Uh, there, there's no evidence of anything else. Again, the, the conspiracy theorists are just you know, either making stuff up or they do what we call is their anomaly hunting. They're looking for anything that looks strange, and then they parlay that into some kind of sinister conspiracy, but they don't have any actual evidence for an actual conspiracy. That clears it up for me. I always felt that way, but I just wanted to gain another definitive word to add to the count uh, because sometimes, you know, we, we yeah. have to sit here. Yeah, you know how it works. I mean, you're right there in uh, the maw of it all. Uh, again, Stephen Novella, sure. professor at Yale University School of Medicine and a vociferous proponent of the scientific skepticism, host of the weekly podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. we got to talk again somewhere down the road. Really appreciate your time. Stay well, Stephen. Absolutely. Thanks. Take care. Interesting story I was reading, and uh, it involves a young woman, uh, a Playboy model, an actress who actually uh, sank to the depths of desperation and, uh, I guess, degeneration, too. And I mean that uh, in the sense that, well, alcoholism had sort of almost claimed her life, uh, but she came back from the brink, and now she's a recovery coach. I'm talking about Jessica Landon, who was on the line from Los Angeles this afternoon, and she's got a fascinating story to share. Jessica, appreciate you joining us here on The Oakley Show in Toronto. How are you doing this afternoon? Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I, I feel honored. Well, you know, uh, it's a story that needs to get told, and uh, a lot of people need to be reminded yeah. of. You had lapsed into right. some pretty, yeah, severe, uh, to a point where the uric acid or your urine was so acidic it was eating your skin. Uh, what's that all about? Yeah, that... I know. That's, that's pretty grotesque, right? Um, yes, I, uh, you know, it was in the the depths of, of my debacle, I was on the streets, you know, nobody, no friends, nobody wanted to be liable for my death. So I was basically just meeting people on the streets. And I met this guy who let me stay with me. He's like a, some ex-vet street musician. And I just laid on his floor and he'd bring me back vodka. You know, I, tell, I told I'd just gotten out of Linwood jail for, you know, stealing vodka from every grocery store. Um, and it had regressed to this point where, where I was just so dependent. I was like, you know, in survival mode. Um, which is ironic. That's the irony of addiction is, is when you are desperate for, and will do anything for that next drink, you're actually in survival mode while simultaneously killing yourself. And people don't understand that. And that's why it's so hard to quit because it's the midbrain, you know, it's the reptilian brain telling you. Anyway, I laid on this guy's floor and he kept bringing me back vodka 
because I talked him into, you know, I said I'd have a seizure if he didn't, which I would have, so so dependent. And um, I laid there and I became immobile. I emaciate, emaciated. I atrophied down to 78 pounds because uh, they weighed me when I got into the hospital. I was, um, I got a blood staph infection because I couldn't get up. I was, I was so atrophied and weak. And I had, my ankle was, I was kind of just swollen and I couldn't walk. So I laid there drunk, uh, drinking myself to death and urinating and defecating on myself. And the acid from my urine burned holes through the bony heart parts of like bed sores type areas of my hips. And that infected my, you know, my organs and, and they started shutting down. That's how I got the blood staph infection. And then I went into ICU was there for 16 days fighting for my life, had a specialist for every organ, a uh, stent, you know, good putting antibiotics in my heart, which was failing, my brain, everything was, they, you know, didn't think I would make it. And all I remember was coming to, like 10 days into ICU, I just came to overhearing my dad say to my granddad, well, it looks like she's going to make it. And I just, that's when reality seeped in. And it was like, oh my God. I did it again. Like, what? What is wrong with me? But this, it had never gotten this. I've never, I had never gotten this, that close to death. And I think that was the blessing is like, you know, I was too weak to leave AMA and go get more vodka. I was too weak. And thank God, by the grace of God, you know, I was too, uh, I had, I needed two blood transfusions. I just laid there and thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I could die, you know, and, um, and I needed, physical therapy and it took uh, it took like months to get strong and walk again and um everything it it took so long to get physically uh strong that it stayed fresh you know that relapse really stayed fresh which was a blessing because it it made me um like a hot flame i didn't want to go back i was like you know finally the pain associated with alcohol eclipsed the memory of pleasure associated with alcohol finally it's like my tolerance was so high it took that you know, so it was, it was hell and back, but I, I begged my parents, I had been to nine rehabs in and out of psych wards because my BAC would get so high. They would, they didn't know what to do with me. They thought I was trying to drink myself to death. And, you know, I had, um, a lot of people ask, like, I remember I had friends that would watch me pound vodka, you know, when they were trying to help me and they'd see me with a bottle of vodka pounding it and they'd say, it just, it looks like you're trying to kill something inside of you. And I thought that was really profound because, in a sense, I was. I had this internal shame and guilt from a uh, childhood trauma, sexual abuse that happened, that, and I had internalized it, and it ate away, it just permeated my life, and I was trying, my drinking was very punitive. And it was very clear, it was very evident to my family and friends that I was harming myself. And I really had to excavate that in sobriety. You know, my first year, I was just desperate. I was desperate. I had to, you know, get therapies, different modalities, um, Course in Miracles, AA. I, I was doing it all. And today you're a recovery coach. I mean, it's a story that uh, is one of rehabilitation and uh, recovery. Jessica Landon with us, actress and former Playboy model. So you were talking about pounding back vodka. I mean, uh, at its worst, yeah. how much were you going through, and uh, why vodka? Why, why was that the drink of choice, and how did you get uh, more or less hooked on that one exclusively? You know, vodka is really what brought me to my knees. Before that, you know, when I was drinking white wine and beer, I could have gone forever. But once I got to vodka at, like, 23, it it really brought me to my knees fast. And I probably because it's, it's, it's practically like a shot going into your veins, and vodka is very 
the burn, you know, I remember just craving that burn in the esophagus and the stomach. Like, it's just crazy what the, what the grip addiction gets on you when you are genetically susceptible or you have trauma or the circumstances are, you know, conducive to just drinking. And it was, you know, I was an actor. I was a working actor. I thought my life was great, partying with Hugh Hefner, you know, doing just it seemed like a glamorous life from the outside, but on the inside, it was, it was a chase. It was, you know, the screaming demon was loud, but nobody else could hear it but me. And I tried to drown it out. And, and I could see other, you know, other models and actors. I I could, I sniffed out the ones that were also kind of trying to chase that thinking that Hollywood or some big, big movie break or some job would, would, just squash that demon would like get them to the to pull them out of the the grips of of the darkness it was like i i could see that a lot a lot of girls did have that similar you know you kind of when you suffer from that you kind of like see it from a mile away yeah there's a lot of power in recovery Right. So it's almost like a radar or a spidey sense that uh, you can, as you said, suss it out. I'm just kind of curious, like uh, if they're maybe the playboy lifestyle and as you say, Los Angeles and uh, in the entertainment industry, were they like enablers of a sort? Like nobody ever really came to you and uh, said, hey, can I help? Or is that even possible when you're in the throes, the grips of alcoholism and you're doing it surreptitiously? Uh, is anybody going to reach you or do you got to reach rock bottom and that come to Jesus moment on your own? You kind of have to do it on your own. Well, especially because the nature of the disease is, like you said, so surreptitious. It's so secretive. And from the outside, you know, I made it seem like everything was fine. Even even my closest family and the guy, the, the guy, my lover I was living with at the time had no idea. I had water in a vodka, in a, I'm sorry, vodka in a water bottle next, in a smart water bottle next to my bed that I would just pound through the night when I would start hitting withdrawal. And he had no idea. Everyone thought I had mono or something when I started just like passing out and sleeping all day, drinking, passing out, drinking and passing out. So it is really secretive. You kind of have to, because my tolerance is so high, I guess some people are more obvious. You know, I, my progression was so slow, I was able to hide it. But a lot of people are obvious. And, yeah, people would reach out if they knew. But the nature of the disease is usually very, you know, secretive, suffer alone, behind closed doors. And you only kind of get a feeling that mm. they're struggling. And so nowadays, like, when I do sense it, like you said, I kind of have a radar I'll reach out. I'll ask because people want to get, they're just desperate to get honest and get help. They really are, you know, usually if they're suffering inside, they are desperate for help. Even if they act like they're not and they want to keep going, they're in hell. If you know someone, you know, that is struggling with addiction, locks their doors and will not let you into their home and their life, they're blocking you out and you know they're addicted, they are in hell and they don't know how to come off and they don't know how to get help. And it's really hard. And, and that's why it's so important to have somebody that has been through it try to connect, try to break down that door, break down those walls and, and connect. Because you only, when you've gone through it, you know, those are the people you know, when you relate to and you can open up to and you're not going to be this crazy lunatic too because they've been there. They've been exactly maybe even lower than you. So you have the strength, the courage to get vulnerable with them because, you know, there's less of a, there's less judgment there. Yeah. Boy, I've seen some pictures, and uh, there's one where you're in the hospital and you're bloodied up. I mean, this was a case, too, where uh, didn't you fall over a railing and uh, crack your head open? 
Yes. Yeah, so six months before that, I mean, my debacles, my relapses uh, that last year were just kind of consecutive, rapid succession. I had a, I had uh, was on a run and I was staying at someone's house. I fell over a railing drunk. Yeah. And I had a brain hemorrhage. It didn't crack the skull actually fortunately it uh but it, it did burst i had a hemorrhagic stroke so it burst internally in uh and so i was paralyzed on my left side i had to um go into uh icu they did a ct scan they saw a um a, a um hematoma about the size of an oblong baseball and they uh they had to detox me first because i was you know my blood was so thin from the amount of alcohol i was drinking so they waited a few days while I was like paralyzed on my left side until I started going into back-to-back grandma seizures, and then they had to go in for emergency brain surgery. And they told my parents, "Don't accept her to be the same. You know, she may be, she may have a different sense of humor. She may not, you know, she may need occupational therapy or uh, physical therapy the rest of her life. Like we don't know. I mean, my parents were. Uh, what I've put them through is just grievously indelible. It's 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 unbelievable. But um. And so I came out miraculously, I went into the acute rehab facility within, within like two and a half, almost three weeks. My strength was virtually 100% back, maybe 95% back. My facial, uh, you know, it was drooping before like a stroke. It came back. Um, the only thing that stuck was I heard music differently, like uh, the, the instruments were like in the forefront. The brain is so mm. effing fascinating but anyway uh that's a whole nother thing but um so i came back and i recovered fully and two months later two months later i have half a shaved head on keppra for anti-seizure medication two months later go back to la and do it all over and it was way worse if you can imagine and that's when i ended up in icu at brotman and i had been to jail for a month which is a whole traumatic experience i had lice i had gotten lice on the streets um, and it was a virulent, gnarly lice that, and, and having lice being, being like 80 pounds in, in Linwood where everyone wants to kill, kill you regardless. You're like, you know, um, and then you get, you are the one, everyone finds out you have lice. Like you, the fact that I survived jail is, is, uh, pretty <laughs> crazy, but they kept <laughs> medicating it and I had to be in a cell alone and it was just like, dude, it's just insane. Right. Uh, so the fact of all of these other things, uh, the most egregious is you have pubic lice. Uh, by the way, uh, the yeah. UK, the UK, you know, in the UK now they're on the brink of a pubic lice epidemic because women are shunning bikini waxes during the lockdown. No. Yes. Why would I come here and lie? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. We need to, why? Because they're... Well, because of the lockdown, I guess they're not getting, you know, the Brazilian or whatever else they do. I mean, you can tell me. I'm really na- naive in this regard. Oh, hmm? my gosh. That's, yeah. Isn't that like a hygiene thing? That's crazy. <laughs> well, again, you see, everybody has their cross to bear, Jessica. I mean, yours is a, a harrowing ordeal magnified several times, and uh, even though you did have yeah. lice, so you've eclipsed these people in the U.K. by some some stretch. But now you're a... Rec- <laughs> and by the way, you, you know, I mean, this is the B-side of the, the Playboy lifestyle. Everybody would have assumed, you know, a lot of glamour, uh, neat parties, meeting all kinds of interesting folk. Uh, and at the end oh, of the yeah. day... Uh, was that part of uh, the problem at all? Was that maybe, you know, the Playboy lifestyle and modeling in Los Angeles were, in fact, the neighbors? Oh, yeah. they were- oh for sure. I mean, because everyone's sort of uh, partying all day, every day. I mean, it, everyone is, and only only a select few become as bad as me. But still, I mean, pa- I mean uh, Hugh Hefner 
I don't know how he never, because he would always ha- bring, you know, pot cookies, always drinking, always, still had quaaludes in the, what year was that? But I was 2000. I mean, he was still had quaaludes. What was what that from the, from the eighties? When did they do quaaludes? He, yeah, he still <laughs> would have those. Like he'd always have these drugs for all the girls and it's just, that that was their lifestyle. Of course, they did it only twice. You know, they had their going out nights that I I would come along, and it was always like Monday and Wednesday when I was hanging around. They'd go out, and so the other days it wasn't you know a party time. But but yeah, it was just seemed like he was always throwing parties. That lifestyle, just the celebrities that hung out up there, and it was just very definitely contributed to my addiction. Thinking associating alcohol with that glamour, with that being accepted in that crowd like i just you know it was um we'd go out to clubs and it was just so uh desirable people just thought it was so neat to be behind the rope behind the red rope with mm. hugh hefner and one of his girls and and it was like man these girls are miserable if people only knew <laughs> you know <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta write a book i mean this is good stuff it's just uh, so I- revealing yeah, I did. I did just finish my memoir, actually. Um, oh. So, yeah, that will be coming out, Human on Fire. Because it is. This is all very important, you know, revealing yeah. things. Right, right. So everything is... You're right. And, uh, you know, it deserves a read because uh, not everything is, you know, just partying with Nikki Six having a good time. Uh, listen, Jessica, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate your weighing in. You're a recovery coach now. Uh, good luck to you. Yeah. You're doing the Lord's work. Uh, you've been to the other side. Now coming back, uh, you can come from a credible place and help a lot of folks. Really appreciate your coming Thank on this you afternoon. Thank so much. Yep. And find me on Instagram, Jessica Landon 12. Find me there. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Friday, September 4th, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.